You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We had been upon the top of the hill about 15 or 20 minutes when the firing began again and gradually approached. I kept my eyes fixed upon the open space in the direction of Cold Harbor and soon saw the pickets slowly falling back and firing in retreat. Sometimes they halted to fire and finally fell back to a little rivulet where we were stationed. The artillery firing that we heard advancing now turned off and rattled furiously down through the woods and soon volleys of musketry mingled with the sound. By and by I saw a single horseman appear and another and another and soon several wheeled around in the open space, and the sunlight flashed on the polished surface of a brass field piece. It was the enemy planning his cannon, and he had selected a splendid position for his battery. See, see, I said, they are planning their cannon. Those are our cannons, said Sergeant Fortescue. You don't suppose they would allow the enemy to place their piece there, do you? Bang! went the loud report, and down went the battalion, and directly over our heads whistled the terrible engine of death. Fortescue arose out of the dust, his face pale and fixed with an anxious look. We had a battery on the right, one on the left, and one on the hill in the rear, and all three opened on the bold and daring enemy, who returned the fire with great spirit and skill. Every gun was exceedingly well managed, and every shot and shell fell with great accuracy, almost in the midst of our crouching battalion. One made a peculiar kind of noise like a humming top whenever it burst. Solid shot struck the bank on which we lay and flopped spitefully around, turning end over end through the air, which was musical with the whistling shot and bursting shell. Some of the men buried their heads, others made barricades of the knapsacks, some laughed and joked, others looked serious and said nothing. Private Thomas P. Southwick, 5th New York Infantry, Warren's Brigade In the evening of that day we came in contact with the enemy, heavily entrenched at Mechanicsville. As we came out in front, in an old field, they began firing on us with their artillery, and the shells passed with the whizzing sound right over our heads. It was anything but pleasant. Kept up a brisk firing, but it did not slow our advance in the least. As we moved rapidly forward across the field, making for a piece of wood at the farther side where the enemy were awaiting us behind their breastworks, a battery of our artillery, commanded by Captain Pegram and manned by a company of Marylanders, came galloping up with us and passed on to our left, the men cheering and singing, Maryland, my Maryland. They unlimbered their pieces right out in front of the Yankee battery and commenced firing. We watched the duel as best we could as we hurried on to the timber ahead. All this was extremely exciting to me, and I realized at once that we were entering upon a battle. My heart beat quick, and my lips became dry. My legs felt weak, and a prayer rose to my lips. We had barely entered the wood when pandemonium broke loose. 
The artillery redoubled its fury. The musketry of both sides began to roar like a storm, and I knew why I was into it now. Strange to say, the fear passed away, and I no longer realized the danger amid the excitement, and I could face the bullets with perfect indifference. Reaching an old rail fence in the woods, I stopped behind it, and a comrade by my side called my attention to the splinters being knocked off the rails by the mini-balls from the enemy's rifles, and we both smiled. I suppose because they were doing the rails all the hurt and leaving us untouched. A great mill pond full of water was directly in our front, and it was impossible for us to reach the Yankees without swimming. We remained there shooting at them, and they at us, until night came down, and then all was still. Sergeant William F. Fulton, 5th Alabama Battalion, Archer's Brigade. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 158 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, at the end of the last episode, in an attempt to seize the initiative and drive the Federals away from Richmond, Robert E. Lee was just about to strike that portion of George B. McClellan's army that was north of the Chickahominy River. Lee's attack was set to kick off on Thursday, June 26, 1862. But the initial battle in what later came to be called the Seven Days Campaign, or the Seven Days Battles, actually took place on Wednesday, June 25th, with the Battle of Oak Grove, which was also known as the Battle of French's Field and the Battle of King's Schoolhouse. As we mentioned before, immediately following the Battle of Fair Oaks, The awful weather aided the Confederate cause, but beyond that, the overly cautious McClellan was content to not make any major movements for some three and a half weeks. That inactivity allowed Lee, who had taken command of the Army of Northern Virginia, to reorganize and plan his strike against the Federals. But by June 25th, it was McClellan who was ready to resume the offensive, although on a relatively modest scale. You see, he wanted to advance his lines south of the Chickahominy about one and a half miles westward in order to control some high ground on Nine Mile Road around Old Tavern, high ground that would be an ideal spot to emplace his big siege guns to threaten Richmond. McClellan's attack would be mounted by two divisions of Samuel P. Heinzelman's Third Corps, those commanded by Joseph Hooker and Philip Kearney. Two brigades drawn from the 2nd and 4th Corps would be held in reserve. The Federal attack would be centered on the Williamsburg Road and would go in against the three Confederate brigades of Benjamin Huger's division. The battle was named for a stand of tall oak trees between the two armies, known locally as Oak Grove. At 8.30 on the morning of June 25th, Hooker ordered forward brigades commanded by Daniel E. Sickles on the Union right and Cuvier Grover in the center. On the Union left, Kearney advanced only a single brigade, led by John C. Robinson. Although the Federal left and center made good forward progress, the soldiers on the Federal right had difficulty moving through the thick, swampy forest in their sector. As a result of their trouble navigating through that difficult terrain, Sickles' men fell behind Grover's brigade. 
and so when Grover attacked the Confederates of Ambrose R. Wright's brigade, he was completely unsupported to his right. Wright's rebels put up stiff resistance, and when reinforcements under Robert Ransom arrived on the field, Uget took advantage of the Yankees' disorganization to launch Ransom's men in a counterattack against Sickles. Heintzelman then ordered reinforcements forward and notified McClellan of the very heavy fighting. Little Mac was attempting to direct the battle by telegraph from a spot three miles to the rear, and alarmed by the report of fierce Confederate resistance, he directed that the attack be suspended and ordered Heinzelman to withdraw everyone back to their original positions. Both Hooker and Heinzelman thought McClellan's reaction was a mistake, but they obeyed his instructions and waited for his arrival at the front. Two and a half hours later, at 1 p.m., McClellan arrived at the battlefield and, after assessing the situation, ordered the Union troops forward again to retake the ground yielded earlier. And so Sickles and Grover's brigades advanced again, and fighting raged until nightfall when darkness halted the battle. When all was said and done, McClellan expressed satisfaction at the 600 yards of ground gained in the day's fighting. Union casualties in the Battle of Oak Grove were 68 killed, 503 wounded, and 55 missing, while Confederate losses were 66 killed, 362 wounded, and 13 missing. McClellan's half-hearted assault on the 25th failed to derail Lee's plans to go over to the offensive. The following day, the rebels struck north of the Chickahominy at Mechanicsville, and Little Mac never regained the initiative for the remainder of the Seven Days' Battles. Robert E. Lee had witnessed some of the fighting during the Battle of Oak Grove on Wednesday, and he was concerned. Lee realized he was taking an enormous risk in massing most of his forces for a strike north of the Chickahominy, while south of the river he left only about 25,000 men under Magruder to defend the approaches to Richmond. Lee wondered if perhaps the Federal movement on the 25th was a spoiling attack by McClellan and was evidence that the enemy commander knew that something was afoot. McClellan did, in fact, suspect that something was afoot, since over the past few days he'd received reports that indicated Stonewall Jackson was on the move to join Lee in front of Richmond. McClellan even cor correctly deduced that Jackson was likely marching down to fall on the Federal right wing north of the Chickahominy. But even though Little Mac was telling Washington that he had nearly 200,000 rebels opposing him, he still pressed on with his own offensive plans. McClellan even planned to follow up his June 25th attack at Oak Grove with an assault on Old Tavern on the 26th or 27th. It's odd, to say the least, that if Little Mac really believed he was heavily outnumbered by the Confederates, he never seemed to expect an attack from the enemy. Here, for example, even when he suspected that Stonewall Jackson was heading his way and that Jackson was going to attack north of the Chickahominy, an attack that would threaten the Federal supply line, Little Mac did nothing to shore up that flank, but continued his own preparations for an assault south of the river. Perhaps McClellan didn't believe Jackson posed a serious threat, or maybe Little Mac just decided the rebels would simply react to his moves and allow him to continue holding the initiative. 
Robert E. Lee, for his part, convinced himself that the half-hearted Union effort at Oak Grove on Wednesday wasn't a spoiling attack, and the Confederate commander decided to proceed with his own plan to go over to the offensive the following day. But on Thursday, the 26th, the start of Lee's attack depended upon Stonewall Jackson's force falling on the Federal right flank early that morning. As we indicated in the last episode, Stonewall, however, wasn't displaying his customary speediness, and on the 25th, it was becoming more and more doubtful that he would be able to live up to his part in Lee's plan. Lee had instructed Jackson to move his force to a place called Slash Church, and from there it would only be 10 miles to Beaver Dam Creek, where Stonewall would arrive on the flank of the Yankees, beginning the day's action on Thursday. To ensure that Jackson's force would arrive on the Federal's flank early in the morning, Lee instructed him to begin his march from Slash Church at 3 a.m. on June 26th. This would have put Stonewall's troops in the right spot no later than 9 a.m. But Jackson encountered many difficulties and made many poor decisions during this important march. The result was that when the men halted long after dark on June 25th, Stonewall's army bivouacked five miles short of Slash Church. From that point, Jackson's men would still have to march between 17 and 19 miles to turn the Federals out of their position. That night, Jackson sent a courier to Lee to say that he was still five miles short of Slash Church, but that he would resume his march at half-past two in the morning to make up some of the lost ground. Once Lee received this message, he must have recalculated to allow for the greater distance Jackson's men would have to march, and so the Confederate commander must have realized Stonewall wouldn't arrive on the Federal's flank any earlier than 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. But very early on Thursday morning, had Lee known what was happening on Jackson's front, he would have been disappointed. While the rest of Lee's army that would participate in the day's offensive began stirring at around 3 a.m., Stonewall's men didn't begin moving until nearly 5 o'clock. Already Lee's plan was badly out of sync, because now Jackson's troops wouldn't be able to arrive before 1 o'clock that afternoon at their fastest pace, and they wouldn't set that pace on this day. Union cavalry patrols felled trees across Jackson's path, slowing his movement. In addition, Stonewall, moving through unfamiliar territory, advanced cautiously, and the result was that he didn't reach Slash Church until 9 a.m. Those officers who had served under Stonewall in the valley noted with surprise that he wasn't moving with the sense of urgency they expected. According to Lee's plan, Stonewall should have been starting his flank march from Slash Church at 3 a.m. on Thursday morning, but Jackson didn't even reach that spot until six hours later at 9 a.m. This delay shows that despite Lee's best efforts to make sure that everyone understood the plan, something was still lost in the translation. Jackson's timid, cautious approach march to Slash Church indicated he wasn't sure where he would come upon the Federal right flank, even though Lee had clearly said the enemy line was located along Beaver Dam Creek, some ten miles from Slash Church. And then Jackson's lack of urgency indicates he didn't comprehend the crucial time factor in Lee's plan. As it was, Stonewall would spend all day marching to the point on the Federal right flank where Lee wanted him. But, whereas Lee had wanted him there at nine in the morning, 
Jackson wouldn't arrive at that spot until 5 p.m. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Early on the hot and humid morning of Thursday, June 26th, Robert E. Lee stood on a rise of ground looking north across the Chickahominy River toward the little hamlet of Mechanicsville and waited for his offensive to begin. Lee had received Jackson's message from the night before stating that he hadn't quite made it to his start position at Slash Church, but would set off at 2.30 to make up some of the lost ground. Meanwhile, A.P. Hill had marched his division down densely wooded lanes and past scattered farms to the vicinity of Meadow Bridge, less than two miles upstream from Mechanicsville. There, like Lee, he waited for word to come from Lawrence O'Brien Branch that Stonewall Jackson was in position. As you guys will recall, Branch and his brigade were positioned north of Mechanicsville at half-sink to serve as a liaison between Stonewall and the rest of Lee's army. Jackson had contacted Branch at 10 a.m. to say that he was running behind schedule, but it's not clear whether Branch forwarded that message to A.P. Hill. An increasingly impatient Hill was left waiting at Meadow Bridge as the sun rose higher in the sky, wondering what had gone wrong. 36-year-old Ambrose Powell Hill was born and raised in Culpeper County, Virginia. He graduated from West Point in 1847, although he had entered the academy with the illustrious class of 1846. He didn't graduate until 1847 due to sickness, specifically a venereal disease he apparently picked up on a visit to New York City. Hill's health concerns and late graduation meant he missed seeing combat in Mexico, although he did take part in garrison duties there. Later, though, he took part in engagements with the Seminoles in Florida and got a taste of Indian fighting on the frontier. In March 1861, in response to the deepening secession crisis, Hill resigned his commission, and when Virginia left the Union, he accepted a commission as colonel of the 13th Virginia Infantry. 
After a brief stint in Western Virginia and a reserve role at First Manassas, Hill spent the winter of 1861-62 with what would become the Army of Northern Virginia. Promoted to Brigadier General in February 1862, he took command of a brigade in Longstreet's division and saw his initial Civil War action that spring. Hill's first taste of battle came outside Williamsburg on May 5th after the Confederate withdrawal from Yorktown. Assigned to the rebel right, Hill's brigade successfully combined with another unit to drive back the Federals led by Joseph Hooker. Hill's brigade fought well under its new commander and demonstrated the discipline and tenacity that would become characteristic of his commands. On May 26th, Hill received his commission as a major general and took command of a division. Hill named his new command the Light Division, a testament to its marching ability, although contrary to its name, the division was far from light, with six brigades and nearly 14,000 men at full strength. The flare-ups from his illness would incapacitate Hill frequently during the Civil War, but on June 26th, it wasn't the result of his youthful indiscretion that had A.P. Hill out of sorts. It was his frustration over Stonewall Jackson's tardiness. Unlike Jackson, Hill clearly understood Lee's plan, and as the sun and temperature continued to rise, Hill's frustration grew with every passing hour. Noon came with no word from Stonewall, and no lunch for Hill's men, because they expected to be fighting any minute. As his troops dozed in the heat, Hill fumed. Here he was twiddling his thumbs at Meadow Bridge, while just a short distance downstream, James Longstreet and D.H. Hill waited in front of the two bridges leading directly into Mechanicsville. As you guys will recall, Longstreet and D.H. Hill were positioned there, opposite Mechanicsville, waiting for A.P. Hill to cross over the Chickahominy and drive downstream on the north bank, uncovering the bridges they were waiting to cross. As A.P. Hill's impatience continued to mount, he reasoned that surely, surely Lee would want the plan to go forward today, and that the Army commander would prefer some action, any action, be taken rather than see an entire day pass quietly and possibly allow McClellan the opportunity to launch another assault south of the Chickahominy. Hill also reasoned that whatever had caused Stonewall Jackson to be late, that Jackson must be near and would arrive on the Yankees' flank at any minute. Finally, at three o'clock that afternoon, realizing that only about five hours of daylight remained, A.P. Hill decided to read Robert E. Lee's mind, and without informing the Army commander or asking his permission, Hill forced a crossing over the lightly defended Meadow Bridge and set the day's battle in motion. A.P. Hill drove across Meadow Bridge and pushed toward Mechanicsville with little difficulty. The Federals to his front retreated rapidly because Fitz John Porter, the commander of the Army of the Potomac's Fifth Corps, had ordered them to fall back to the main line at Beaver Dam Creek if the Confederates attacked. Porter knew the strength of his position at Beaver Dam Creek, and in the event of an enemy attack, he had no intention of fighting anywhere else except from behind his formidable line there. Lee was still waiting on the bluffs overlooking the Chickahominy when he heard the firing coming from the direction of the Meadow Bridge. 
As he trained his field glasses toward Mechanicsville, he saw Confederate troops advancing and blue-clad soldiers retreating. Lee turned to Longstreet, who had joined him on the bluffs, and said, Those are A.P. Hill's men. You may cross over. Longstreet rode off immediately and ordered the crossing to begin. D.H. Hill's division was in the lead, since once it crossed the river, it would have the farthest to march to take up position between Stonewall Jackson and A.P. Hill. D.H. Hill's crossing was delayed for a short time while the damaged span over the Chickahominy was repaired, but shortly after 4 p.m., his lead brigade of Roswell, Ripley's Georgians, and North Carolinians marched across the bridge. Soon after D.H. Hill's men started crossing, Lee rode over the bridge and went straight to Mechanicsville to meet with A.P. Hill. Lee found Hill shortly before 5 o'clock and probably learned for the first time that Hill had kicked off the battle without hearing from Stonewall Jackson. Much abuse over the years has been heaped on A.P. Hill for acting recklessly, and you might imagine that Robert E. Lee was displeased to discover his impatient subordinate had acted rashly. But Lee may not have been surprised or upset by Hill's actions, since he never reprimanded Hill for bringing on the battle, and in fact, it seems that Lee had also reached the conclusion that the army needed to cross the river, Stonewall or no Stonewall. Two independent sources, who were nearly at three that afternoon, confirmed that he had made up his mind to cross the Chickahominy before darkness fell. While Lee may not have been upset by A.P. Hill's bringing on the battle, he clearly was upset by the presence of Jefferson Davis on the battlefield. Soon after Lee crossed over the Chickahominy, Davis and his entourage also crossed the river to observe the unfolding action for themselves. Lee noticed them and hurried over to have a brief and unfriendly chat with the Confederate president. Who are all this army of people, and what are they doing here? Lee asked curtly. Davis, understanding Lee was upset, hesitantly responded, It is not my army, General. To which Lee tersely snapped, It certainly is not my army, Mr. President, and this is no place for it. Davis seemed surprised by the rebuke, but conceded Lee's point and said, Well, General, if I withdraw, perhaps they will follow. With that, Davis and the others rode back toward the bridge, but once they were out of Lee's sight, they simply found another spot to view the battle. When A.P. Hill had cleared Mechanicsville, he came up to the Union line behind Beaver Dam Creek and knew that his one division alone could never carry such a strong defensive position. As his artillery batteries and five infantry brigades came out onto the open ground beyond Mechanicsville, they quickly came under accurate and damaging fire from the more numerous Federal cannon across the way. Hill decided that he couldn't just leave his troops there in the open near Mechanicsville where there was little cover, but instead of withdrawing out of artillery range, Hill decided to move his men toward the enemy's position. Hill had no plans to attack the formidable Union line head-on, but was only trying to close with the enemy and keep them occupied while Stonewall Jackson arrived on their flank and rear and forced them to retreat. Hill also apparently felt that, compared to the open ground around Mechanicsville, the trees along the creek would shelter his men from the Yankee artillery fire. In any case, Hill was making a giant leap of faith in assuming that Jackson would appear at any minute and spare his, Hill's brigades, 
The mauling they may well suffer as they closed up to the enemy's Beaver Dam Creek line. In fact, unbeknownst to anyone, soon after A.P. Hill's brigades became engaged in battle, Jackson had finally arrived at his appointed spot on the Yankees' flank, at Hundley's Corners, from which point Lee expected him to drive into the Federal rear and force the Federals to retreat. But according to eyewitnesses on his own staff, after arriving at Hundley's Corners, Stonewall appeared confused and worried. He apparently expected Hill to be nearby on his right flank and was perplexed at the absence of any friendly troops in that direction. Jackson and everyone else could hear the sounds of battle raging to the south, but Stonewall didn't know what it meant, and he didn't send an aide or courier to find out. Here was another example of Lee's orders being open to multiple interpretations, for although Lee expected Jackson to drive forward from Hunley's Corners on the 26th to force the Federals to retreat, Stonewall apparently believed he had fulfilled the letter and spirit of Lee's orders when he arrived at Hunley's Corners. And so at 6 p.m., even though there was the sound of a battle raging just to the south, Jackson ordered his men into bivouac for the night. Stonewall knew something had gone wrong since Hill was not there to link up with him, but Stonewall didn't know that he was the reason Lee's plans for the day had been derailed. At any time, Jackson could have sent one of Jeb Stewart's troopers, who were guarding Stonewall's left flank, or dispatched one of his own staff officers to Lee or Hill, but he never did. While Stonewall Jackson was calling it a day and his troops were settling in for the night, A.P. Hill was committing his division to battle. He sent Charles W. Field's brigade off first, across the fields for about a mile to the slight cover of a line of trees along the near edge of Beaver Dam Creek. They were trying to get close enough to the enemy's lines that Union artillery couldn't fire due to the risk of hitting their own troops. Field, a 34-year-old Kentuckian, brought his men within musket range of the Federal lines, but musket fire was more tolerable than artillery fire, since at least the Confederate infantrymen could reply in kind. Marching slightly behind and to the left of Field was James J. Archer's brigade. These two rebel brigades engaged the Yankees across the creek, but they had no intention of actually trying to force a crossing, since that would have been suicidal. Other than waiting uncomfortably in the sun all day long, there wasn't a whole lot to give the Federal troops along Beaver Dam Creek much concern as they sat in their rifle pits. They had clear fields of fire, a creek 20 yards wide, and swampy ground for another 80 yards that would slow down any Confederate assault. They had dug their rifle pits to provide protection and felled trees to their front to form an abatis, and to cap it off, they had batteries of artillery further up the slope behind them, firing safely over their heads at the enemy across the creek. The Union soldiers knew it would take an attack by superhuman legions to break a line this strong. On the Confederate far left, Joseph Anderson, a 49-year-old West Point graduate and former superintendent of the Tredegar Ironworks, maneuvered his brigade to try to capture the Union cannon from the flank and in that way reduce the pressure on everyone. 
But confusion over the lay of the land and poor maps, which would plague Lee's army throughout the campaign, resulted in Anderson's men not coming in far enough on the northern flank of the Yankees. Nevertheless, Anderson pushed farther forward than any other brigade and actually crossed the creek briefly. There was some momentary hand-to-hand fighting at the Yankee breastworks before Anderson's troops fell back and exchanged shots with their opponents until nightfall. The Federal artillery was simply too strong to allow any Confederate success along this line. Anderson, Archer, and Field engaged in a five-hour firefight across the creek with the brigades of George McCall's Pennsylvania Reserve Division. While A.P. Hill's other brigades crossed the open fields and engaged the enemy, William Dorsey Pender, a promising 28-year-old North Carolinian in his first command, led his troops down the Cold Harbor Road toward the creek. About a 100 yards from the creek, the road turned sharply south and paralleled the water course for a quarter mile or more before turning east again and crossing the creek just south of Ellerson's Mill. Here, Pender thought he saw an opportunity to turn the Yankees' left flank, which didn't appear to be anchored on the Chickahominy. While traversing this road under artillery fire and confused by inadequate maps, two of Pender's regiments veered off course and got tangled up with the rebel soldiers in Field's brigade, while two regiments continued south of the road. Those latter two attacked Truman Seymour's brigade of Pennsylvania troops, who were supported by 14 pieces of artillery. Pender's men got within 100 yards of the Union position before being forced to retreat with heavy losses. The 38th North Carolina lost more than one-third of its men in this failed attack. One of Pender's aides, stunned to be alive, wrote that night, quote, I never saw such a storm of shot and shells before. Fragments of shells literally hailed around me. But Pender's failed assault indicated to Robert E. Lee that perhaps an attack in force closer to the river might turn the Union left flank. At the very least, it would relieve the pressure on A.P. Hill's embattled brigades. Roswell S. Ripley's brigade of D.H. Hill's division had crossed the Mechanicsville Bridge and had advanced a half-mile toward the village when Lee sent orders for Ripley to move to the far Confederate right near the river in order to try to pry the Federals out of their position. Ripley's brigade suddenly became the focus of everyone's attention, and the resulting developments highlighted the growing pains Lee's army would have to endure to develop a new efficient command structure. The first person to confer with Ripley was A.P. Hill, who asked the 39-year-old Ohio-born Confederate officer to cooperate with Pender to drive away the Yankee batteries near Ellerson's Mill, which Ripley agreed to do. This was done without consulting either D.H. Hill, Ripley's division commander, or Lee. Meanwhile, D.H. Hill met Pender, who unwisely suggested another attack right where his regiments had been repulsed, and Hill sent orders to Ripley to make just such an assault. And so, within a short span of time, Ripley received orders from Lee, A.P. Hill, and D.H. Hill, and all had a different idea of how Ripley should be used. Just for good measure, Jefferson Davis also sent an order to Ripley without Lee's knowledge. Ripley thus had the dubious honor of receiving orders from his division commander, a neighboring division commander, the army commander, and his country's commander-in-chief, all in a matter of minutes. 
When Ripley did send his men in where the Cold Harbor Road crossed the creek at Ellerson's Mill, it led to severe casualties for the 1st North Carolina and the wholesale slaughter of the 44th Georgia, which was experiencing its first battle. Confederate artillery commander E. Porter Alexander later said, quote, A more hopeless charge was never entered upon. The Green Georgia Regiment, with the North Carolinians following, let out its first rebel yell and raced forward, as one lieutenant remembered it, quote, through a perfect hailstorm of every kind of death-dealing missile that the brain of man could invent, end quote. The regiment's colonel had been laid low with a serious spout of fever, but although he was scarcely able to walk, he insisted on being helped onto his horse to lead his men into battle. He was mortally wounded by three shots during the charge to the creek. The Georgians amazingly managed to get all the way to a mill race within 50 yards of the enemy line, but were, but were unable to go any further. While the 44th Georgia succeeded in getting down to the creek, where they were pinned down and slaughtered by musketry, the 1st North Carolina stopped halfway to the creek, unable to go farther, but unwilling to retreat. When darkness mercifully ended the day's fighting, both units were able to fall back safely. The 1st North Carolina had suffered 142 casualties, while the 44th Georgia had 335 men killed and wounded out of 514 engaged. Lee's first battle in command of the Army of Northern Virginia had been a disastrous mixture of confused orders and poor execution. His army had assaulted a fortified line that Lee had expressly desired to avoid. Out of 10,000 soldiers engaged, the Confederates lost about 1,500 men, a third of whom fell during the final bloody charge at Ellerson's Mill. The Federals of Fitzjohn Porter's V Corps and McCall's Division of Pennsylvania Reserves had lost only 361 men out of the 14,000 on hand for the battle. That night, Lee met with his division commanders in a house in Mechanicsville. Lee couldn't help but be upset by the day's events. In fact, after the war, Lee would admit he was, quote, end quote, disappointed at not finding Stonewall Jackson on hand that first day, which from Lee was severe criticism. The simple fact was that Jackson, whether through fatigue or a misreading of Lee's orders, failed to arrive at the time or the location Lee expected and needed him. A.P. Hill has come in for his share of criticism over the years for initiating the battle without consulting Lee, but Hill's rash act must be set against the evidence that by 3 p.m. Lee himself had decided to have Hill do the very thing he did anyway. A.P. Hill also cannot really be faulted for closing with and engaging the Federals along Beaver Dam Creek, since Lee was present and could have countermanded Hill's orders if he disagreed with them. Pender launched a confused attack against a strong Union force at Ellerson's Mill, and then Lee made a mistake in reinforcing failure when he ordered Ripley's brigade to try to do what Pender's could not. D.H. Hill rerouted Ripley's brigade from what Lee had in mind, but the fact is that, one, as one writer pointed out, Ripley's soldiers had no chance of breaking the Union line short of an airborne assault to the enemy's rear. 
For all the finger-pointing at the subordinates who failed Lee on June 26th, it was the Confederate commander himself who ultimately was responsible for the day's failure. Right from the get-go, Lee's plan was probably too complicated for an army serving together for the first time under a new commander, so Lee's expectations were unrealistic. But his greatest flaw on the 26th itself was a failure to utilize his staff to keep track of exactly what was going on. Lee never ordered A.P. Hill to send an aide to find Stonewall Jackson. He never sought to gather any information as to why the plan was behind schedule. This lack of effective staff work cost the Confederates dearly on June 26th. To be fair, Hill, Branch, and Jackson also failed to communicate with each other effectively or coordinate their activities, but Lee was the one ultimately responsible for finding out why his plan was failing. When all was said and done, the events of the 26th showed that, as an army commander, Robert E. Lee was learning on the job, and it was tough training, to be sure. As darkness descended on the day's battlefield, the night found the Confederates dejected and George B. McClellan euphoric. In mid-afternoon, just about the time that A.P. Hill began crossing Meadow Bridge, McClellan arrived at Fitzjohn Porter's headquarters to check on things. From there, he kept an eye on the day's fighting and saw the benefits of Porter's skillful defensive arrangement. McClellan's initial thoughts were that he'd turned back Stonewall Jackson's flanking force. At 9 p.m., McClellan sent a triumphant telegram to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, trumpeting the day's success and bragging, quote, Victory of today complete and against great odds. I almost begin to think we are invincible, end quote. That night, Little Mac also wrote to his wife, saying, quote, We have again whipped the secesh. Stonewall Jackson is the victim this time. But McClellan's delight didn't even last the night. Upon reflection, Little Mac knew his right flank would be vulnerable when Stonewall Jackson roused himself at dawn. And so during the night, McClellan ordered Fitzjohn Porter to withdraw eastward to a second line of defense. By first light on the morning of the 27th, only a rear guard remained at Beaver Dam Creek. The rest of Porter's Corps was marching four miles to the east to another sluggish little stream, Bosun's Creek, which afforded an even more formidable defensive position. And so, although Robert E. Lee couldn't know it, his disastrous opening battle had actually planted the seeds for Confederate victory there in front of Richmond, because during the darkness, after the initial elation had subsided, McClellan's fears came rushing in and compelled him to abandon his grand campaign to capture the rebel capital. By ordering Porter to withdraw from Beaver Dam Creek, Little Mac surrendered the initiative to Robert E. Lee, and the Union commander, already beaten in his own mind, would spend the rest of the seven days trying to save his army from the ceaseless hammer blows the Confederates rained upon it. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Davis and Lee at War by Stephen E. Woodworth. This book by Stephen Woodworth is pretty interesting, but also a bit 
provocative, uh, shall we say, in that it looks at the relationship between Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and argues that the two men had sharply conflicting views over the proper strategy for fighting the war. Anyway, give it a read and see what you think about Woodworth's line of reasoning. So that's Davis and Lee at War by Stephen E. Woodworth, and you can find it and all of our other book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. And at the website, you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, just like Roger and Tony and Jim and David and Rich and Andrea did this past week. And thanks also to David for his very generous donation. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us next week when we look at the third of the seven days battles, the Battle of Gaines Mill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.